Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's podcast is sponsored by FastBitcoins.com. FastBitcoins provides a simple way for people to buy Bitcoin directly from their bank account or with cash in physical stores. Their services are rapidly growing in availability across the UK, Estonia, as well as Canada, and they're launching in Australia soon too. FastBitcoins is committed to providing high-quality Bitcoin-only services. They want to make sure that the growing number of people interested in buying and benefiting from the possibilities of Bitcoin can do so easily, securely, and with as few distractions as possible. Learn more about FastBitcoins' range of services at fastbitcoins.com, including how you can earn Bitcoin for free through their referral scheme. That is fastbitcoins.com. Fastbitcoins.com. Go check them out. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we've got on a friend of mine. He is a super interesting guy. He is an author. He is the host of the You're Welcome podcast, which I featured on last year. And this is Michael Malice. Welcome to the show. Hey, Zuby. How you doing? I'm doing great. Awesome, man. So we were just saying you're, you're in the middle of New York right now. You're, you're in Brooklyn. Hardest city hit by the virus that cannot be named. But how are you coping out there? It seems like things are coming back to normal. Yeah, it was pretty rough for a bit. Um, when you're, you know, I've lived here all my life. And when you're walking around outside, I was still going to the studio four days a week. And the streets are completely deserted. Um, it does a number on you psychologically. I mean, uh, what greater visual is there in a movie that uh, economic times are tough than boarded up stores, right? Now imagine where literally every store in your neighborhood is closed and not only in your neighborhood, but everywhere you go. So it does have that kind of background subtext of despair. In addition, you know, New York is high population density. So to be riding the subway at like noon and to have no one else in the subway car is something without precedent. Um, even after 9-11, it wasn't like this at all. Yeah. So for quite a bit of time, it was a, a very tough adjustment. And to the point where, you know, like my, my crew, they were all thinking about like, we're over this because, you know, at a certain point, if New York doesn't have what makes New York, New York, it becomes we're paying exorbitant rates to be in a detention center. Mm-hmm. We could be paying non-exorbitant rates to be in a detention center somewhere else. Point, yeah. um, but now I think very recently things have started opening up. Uh, you know, I was just last weekend in Williamsburg, which is like a, you know, used to be a big hipster neighborhood and half the people weren't even wearing masks. So I think there is this kind of low key consensus that uh, a lot of the concerns over this are overblown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people are, you know, we're New Yorkers. So the social isolation is not something that New York is a very lonely city in many ways, sure. but certainly not in the sense of being physically isolated. Mm-hmm. So I think having that 
at a certain point where we're like, yeah, we're not doing this, especially because our mayor, you know, uh, de Blasio is regarded. Um, the, I mean, like a lot of people maybe dislike Cuomo, but de Blasio's the people who don't like him regard him with an enormous amount of contempt. Okay. So uh, I think that to some extent fed into it as well. Fair enough, man. So I've done a real brief intro of you right there, man. But for people who are not familiar with you, your background and your work, tell us a little bit about who Michael Malice is. Oh, um, okay. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm different from you. I think you're much more of a um, mass audience kind of guy. <laughs> and I'm much more of a velvet rope kind of guy. Okay. Um, so it's fun for me to be a bit of a cipher, but briefly, I, if I had to give my CV, I'm the author of Dear Reader, which is the, the one book about North Korea that tell you everything you need to know. And more recently, a book on the new right, which is this uh, kind of sociopolitical phenomenon that's erupted in the United States mm-hmm. in around, let's say, 2014 and a bit earlier uh, and continues to this day. Um, yeah. So those are my, and I'm a big, you know, troll on Twitter. Um, <laughs> uh, um, All the best people are. Post two podcasts. Yeah, that's true. That, that's really true. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing to watch humor uh, be weaponized against some <laughs> truly wretched and depraved people. So, yeah. Awesome, man. And to write this book on North Korea, I mean, you actually, you visited North Korea, right? You're one of the few yeah. people who's You've never actually been? been there. I've been to a lot of places, man, but I can't say I've been to North Korea, nor can I say that it's ever been sort of particularly high on my on my vacation list. Why wouldn't you want to go? If I got the opportunity, I would. If someone invited me to North Korea like later this year, I'd be like, yeah, screw it. Let, let, let's go. Um, yeah. It, but I think for some, I don't know, I think some, for some fairly obvious. Firstly, I don't think most people are aware that you can even go there. Yeah, it's I, no I think, longer the case. Uh, okay. Now it's illegal for Americans at least to go. Uh, I, I thought it had been illegal to go and it had been illegal for many years. In fact, you know, for a North Korean to have contact with an outsider, let alone an American, would have had severe consequences for them and their family because it's such an um, ideologically isolated country by law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was on Facebook one day, this must have been 2010, and my buddy Ed, who I went to college with, um, who's, and there's this dopey picture in Kim Il-sung Square waving in front of a tank, and I'm like, what, what is going on? And of course, the backstory is he met a guy at Burning Man, obviously, <laughs> and there are a couple of companies that work with the North Korean government, Western companies, mm-hmm. um, to... Uh, invite tourists and basically how it, the partnership works is these companies um, say you know we're going to vet these people you know because like who you're letting in here and they have a certain number of guides that they work with and it was illegal was not cheap um, and you go there and it's you know there's it is uh, there's no other country remotely like it on earth mm-hmm. um, so it's very um, it's uh, it's impossible to convey. Uh, what it's like to be in um, North Korea. But I, I had the opportunity to go back. Um, and then I saw my friend, two of my friends had gone since I had gone. And looking at their photos on Facebook, I was like, I, I can't do this again. Because yeah. the thing that people don't appreciate is that uh, every single, you know, you walk around uh, and you see Pyongyang, the capital city, you see some other cities, depending on your itinerary. Mm-hmm. Everyone I saw, everyone is still there. Like literally, you know, think about you going to London, you come to New York, you see people on the street, you don't know who this guy is. You don't know yeah, where, you know, yeah. you see a tourist, you see from LA, everyone 
I saw is still trapped in that prison. So that does a number on you because you think about how much your life has changed or however listeners' life has changed, uh, you know, in four years, six years, their lives cannot change. Yeah. Uh, so it's very, very uh, uh, bleak when you think about this and it makes you always keep in mind uh, the plight of the uh, North Korean population. Yeah. I mean, so so you got to sort of properly see a couple different cities? Oh yeah, yeah uh, I okay. mean th- that. That's the, the, I mean the, because after the collapse of the Soviet Union in eighty nine through ninety one, uh, North Korea had for decades pitted China and the Soviet Union against each other, and they were in a literal sense a welfare state, getting okay. effectively kickbacks from both countries. Uh, when that went away, uh, North Korea, which produces nothing of value, had little to exchange with other countries. Um, so in, in, in their quest for hard currency, meaning you know Chinese RMB or other forms of currency, U.S. dollars, they're like, all right, I guess we can bring people here and have them look at it. Um, so that is what they did. And, and uh, Kim Jong-il, who's the father of the current leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, had said, quote, uh, we don't want uh, hordes of tourists coming in here polluting our land and spreading AIDS. Uh, this was, a, this was a, a, one of the lines <laughs> that was in my Kickstarter for the book. Okay. Um, so they were very averse to having foreigners, but at a certain point, it's like, all right, we need money desperately. Mm. Um, and, and that was one. That, so there is a little bit of an ethical dilemma because when you are going there, you are giving money directly to this government, which is the most evil government on earth, which is responsible for the genocide of millions of people uh, during the 90s through famine. Uh, so that is something you have to think about. And, and mm. the way I made my peace with it is I feel that uh, my work um, and discussing this issue constantly and in you know, many uh, um, forms of media, everywhere from Alex Jones to Al-Qaeda, um, yeah. to Al-Qaeda, Al Jazeera. <laughs> <laughs> I, was so I was like, man, this guy's And Al-Qaeda. You know, I sat down with Bin Laden. We were watching these back in Pakistan. And I'm like, you know, North Korea is pretty bad. He's like, oh, God, tell me about it. Like, they don't even have planes to fly into buildings. They don't have buildings. I'm like, it's terrible, Osama. Um, So uh, having covered it in like every venue uh, and and really always uh, sticking to the message of, doesn't matter what you think about Trump. It doesn't matter if you think Kim Jong-un's sister is cute. All that matters is the ongoing enslavement of this 20 plus population, million population mm. that has been going on for 70 years, who have very little hope, um, who have to live with constantly looking over their shoulder because at any moment, their entire family, punishment is family style there, yeah. can happen. That is something that people have to always keep in mind when this issue comes up. Mm. That's crazy. So did, were you able to, how, how long were you there for? A week. A week. Okay. And you... Were you able to sort of interact with, just interact with locals and talk to everybody? Yeah, so, it was just like a, a free trip kind of thing. Oh, it's not free trip. Oh, sorry. I don't, I, I don't mean, I don't mean financially. I mean, as in you were able to. No, you're not oh, no, free oh. in any sense. So oh, every okay, minute okay. of your, every minute of your trip is planned for you. Right. Okay, and which sounds okay. more ominous than it is because you can easily go to London and have an itinerary where it's like, okay, here we're going to the bookstore, here we're going to London Museum, you know, here we're going to Tate Modern, whatever. Yeah. So that's, that sounds more ominous than it is, but and you always do have your guides with you, but the guides aren't as, because these tourist companies get to pick their guides, the guides tend to be much more um, open-minded. Plus, when you live in Pyongyang, you know, to live in Pyongyang, the capital city, you can step foot there. Uh, they don't have internal migration. You have to have permission to move from city to city. In North oh, Korea. wow. Okay. And, and you have to have a family with a good family background, meaning loyalty to the 
government to even to live in Pyongyang proper, uh, they very much consider themselves kind of cosmopolitan urbanites, you know, kind of like London and New Yorkers, the, the snobbery. Mm-hmm. So, but at the same time, you know, I was born in, in Russia mm-hmm. and I'm very aware of how people perceive Americans, right? Like obnoxious loudmouths. So I use this to my advantage. So everyone I saw in the street, I got in their face and I waved at them yeah. because I knew their reaction would be visceral and therefore sincere, right? Mm-hmm. If, if someone gets in your face, you're, gonna re- you're, you're not going to have time to really think of what reaction. And the, the thing that's very disturbing about um, the North Korean population is they're really normal. So the grandmothers had their granddaughters and they're doting over them. And then the teenage kids, boys with their Adidas track suits, with the sneer on their face, rolling their eyes at you, you know, and the girls giggling across the street. It was all like you'd expect, which makes it even worse because you would think, okay, if this government has turned these people into robots without any humanity, mm-hmm. then it wouldn't be as bad as realizing they're just as vapid and boring as anyone er- everywhere else. And uh, you know, and that's also good in the sense that once they are peacefully liberated, which will hopefully happen very soon, um, it won't be as tough of a transition to have them to have a more liberal, if not a democracy, at least certainly a country where they can you know watch whatever. TV shows they like within yeah. even within limits and listen to whatever music they like and yeah. not have to be concerned about you know being deported to the countryside or worse because they have K-pop mm. on their you know headphones and they have a right to have headphones. Okay, what's the what's the architecture and infrastructure? Yeah, so my friend, I you know I left uh, the Soviet Union when I, my family we were one and a half, so of course I don't remember it at all. Yeah. My buddy moved when he was um, like fourteen. Um, from the Soviet Union and he was looking at my photos of North Korea and it blew his mind because he's like this looks like Leningrad but with Asian people walking around like it was a total um, screwing with his head because it was identical structures but it wasn't Russians so like he couldn't reconcile those two things Uh, you know North Korea started as a client state of Stalin's you know Soviet Union Mm -hmm. uh, and that's clearly trickled down in many ways though now they're kind of trying to downplay that uh, origin story in favor of elevating you know the founder of North Korea the great leader Kim Il-sung but it is the thing that to understand about um, uh, uh, North Korea People think that when you go there, they're trying to show you how beautiful it is and how great, so you go back and report. Mm-hmm. They do not have that capability. Okay. Uh, none of us can appreciate what it's like to be in a capital city, you know, the, the showcase city of any country, and not have it have electricity at night. You know, you have these high-rise buildings and half the lights, half the floors have no electricity. Mm-hmm. And the thing about North Korea is wherever you go, without exception, something will be wrong. So every wall will have a crack. Every carpet will have a stain. Everywhere I went, there was a fly, even on the plane. Mm -hmm. Uh, If the elevator bank has four buttons, one will be mismatched. (laughs) If you go to a factory and there's a bathroom, the the thing to flush the toilet will be rusted through. So, And there's a smell uh, that is very hard to describe. I have it in some of my books that I brought back. Um, so and if you go to their park, there's this, if you can look, you can look at this in Google, there's a park with this fountain with these white marble statues and the fountain wasn't on. And the lights weren't on and it was covered in mildew, just like in a shower. So there's no, uh, the one place where everything looks really nice is the Friendship Exhibition Hall, which is they built this mount, this museum into the side of a mountain. And when you go in there, you have to take off your shoes. And on display, they have all the gifts that the leaders have received from um, other leaders from around the world, other uh, presidents, prime ministers and the like. 
and they have the basketball. But the thing is, because North Korea has a very little context for many of the things that they have, it's, it ends up being kind of comical because you have an old vehicle that Stalin gave the great leader Kim Il-sung, but you also have the basketball that Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, gave to Kim Jong-il um, when she visited in the 90s, next to like an Amiga computer from the 80s with like okay. a mouse and an ma- instruction manual. And they're all side by side. And you're like, it, it's just some weird like kind of uh, storage unit almost. Of, like the, And a lot of these samovar sets, for those who don't know, those are those tea sets, the Russians, you got mm-hmm. the teapot and you got the two cups. And there were like dozens of those. So I guess during this, you know, this, the communist era, this was the big gift to give people, like a gift of a tea set. So there were a lot of those and they were not nice looking. Man, that's crazy. I think you're the only person I know who's actually been to North Korea. So it, it just fascinates me that in the modern era in 2020, there is still a country, not even a small country, right? There's a country with 20 million people that we are not in contact with. They're not in contact with us. And I know, like, I'm so curious because I know quite a lot about the world in general, like probably sure. more than, certainly more than the average person, but it's like, there's just this one country there that I've never met anybody from, and I I can't even, uh, you know, online, right? I'm, I'm not connected online with anybody from, I, I just don't know anything about it. And I think that that is, it, it's almost crazy that that's even possible. You wouldn't, you would not think that that was possible given the internet and how interconnected everybody and everything is now. So it, I think it's just fascinating. Yeah, one of the things I discuss in my book, and it's it's the biography of Kim Jong-il. So Kim Jong-il is North Korea's Forrest Gump. Whenever anything interesting happens, he's supposedly there. So as he tells his life story, he's telling the story of how this country came to be. Mm-hmm. This didn't happen overnight. This is a very systematic uh, um, centralization of power in the leadership position and in the state. Step by step, they closed down the borders. They exterminated people who have contact with the outside world. They tighten the thumb screws, they increase surveillance, they increase consequences, uh, they stigmatized uh, anything foreign. This took a long time. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, they haven't, uh, it's very hard to waterproof a country, especially when ideas cost nothing to carry with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, there are some very big moments in North Korean history when the North Korean state started losing control of the script, one of the biggest ones. Y- you can tell people that the great leader, Kim Il-sung, is the most wonderful human being who ever lived. You can't tell people that they had more food this year than they had last year, or Mm -hmm. that it's a good thing that their daughter is hungry. Um, So these are things that it's very hard for them to work around. And uh, truth and dishonesty are asymmetrical, right? So if I tell you a thousand truths and one lie, you know, like a murderer isn't murdering 24-7, he kills someone once, but that (laughs) is what defines him for his entire life. So if I'm telling you propaganda all day, and you find one thing that doesn't add up, very quickly I'm realizing, hold on, what's going on here? And, and these are not stupid people by any, mm. any means. And a lot of the things they say aren't false, but simply logically incoherent. So for example, currently they're being taught that Kim Jong-un, uh, the current leader, was able to drive a car at like four or five years of age. Now, how is, her, how is he, let, let's suppose he's brilliant and knows how to do it. I don't think okay. that that's impossible, right? Let's sure, just put that sure. aside. The mechanics of a car aren't that complicated. How are, his, how are his feet reaching the pedals, right? But like you, you laugh, but you have to live in a country where if your teacher tells you this, you know to smile and nod. Yeah. And if you don't smile and nod, your father might lose his job or your mother might be, you know, called into the principal's office and you might not have food. 
So we don't appreciate how sinister it is to live in a state where anyone can do anything to you at any time, even from a childhood age, and you have to be aware of this. And in fact, um, I forget who it was, but they, they made the point that the more ridiculous the claim, the more useful it is to control the population. Because if you tell people things that are completely nonsensical, then you really know, all right, are you guys believing the nonsense and or acting as if you are? Either which is fine, Mm -hmm. but this is a great way to quickly demonstrate levels of obedience and submission. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you said you think it's going to be liberated soon. How do you see that happening? Um, these states go down hard and fast. There's this quote from Hemingway where it was, how did you go bankrupt two ways, gradually and then suddenly? Mm -hmm. So what brought down the Soviet Union was uh, trashy culture. So you could tell people all day long about dialectical materialism and the dictatorship of the proletariat. And, you know, Lenin was the great genius of the ages. I'm some unintelligent average person at home and I'm watching soap operas, and I see the maid on this soap opera has a fur coat and a car, and I'm literally wiping my butt with newspaper. Mm. At a certain point, I'm like, wait, why am I hungry when in this country, the maids are wealthier than the wealthiest person I know? And that is happening now in North Korea. We all know young people around the world, there's some similarities. At a certain point, you want to listen to a song that isn't about the leader, or that isn't about the military. I just want to dance, right? Mm -hmm. And having K-pop come in and having South Korean soap operas come in um, and having more refugees reporting back with things like cell phones and and, and you have uh, people and smugglers across the border. Mm -hmm. And when people report things back that are so disparate to what you've been taught and how you live, that cynicism toward the regime is very, very healthy. And a great thing is uh, the one upside of the government not really being able to feed the population is you have these black markets, um, which the government basically has to look the other way. And that's how many people get their foods. But this is empowering these independent so-called business people, you would call them. They're often predominantly female. And the police who are hungry themselves now don't have power because they're just being bribed to look the other way. So this corruption is something that a country built on earnest worship of the state cannot abide with and sustain itself with long term. And at a certain point, someone is going to say, okay, this is this is why we're we doing this. It's gonna take it's gonna be like a domino effect, mm. just like happened in 1989. There was this great my favorite history book is called uh, Revolution 1989 by Victor Sebastian. He's a Hungarian-born historian, and he talks about how, you know, during the 70s. Uh, we were told very explicitly and constantly, Soviet Union is not going anywhere. We better sit down and shut up and have a detente and figure out how to work together. We have to learn how to learn. All the cartoons, even children are taught this. If you look at cartoons from that era, comic books, we have to learn how to work together. We have to learn how to live together. No one's going anywhere. This is forever. And then you had Gorbachev, Reagan, Thatcher, and Pope John Paul, to some extent, sat down. And they're like, all right, we're, we're, this isn't, we're not doing this. And when the Berlin Wall started coming down, and, and you had these uh, borders starting to break down between Soviet bloc countries. And they're on the phone, the East German leader, Hunker, and um, Romania calling uh, the leader there, um, Ceausescu, calling Gorbachev saying, dude, you have to send in the tanks. It's all 
falling apart. Like people are crossing borders. They're not listening to the cops. We're losing our power. You got to send the tanks like you did to Hungary and like you did in, in the 50s in Prague, like you did in 68. And Gorbachev, to his infinite, enormous credit, said, I'm not sending the Russian tanks. Mm-hmm. You guys are on your own. And when everyone started looking around and we're like, they're not going to do anything, these countries, governments collapsed virtually yeah. overnight. My friend, Simon, he's from Czech Republic. He was conceived you know, under communism, born under, uh, after the Velvet Revolution. Yeah. And even when his mom was pregnant, she goes, I never even imagined the idea that you wouldn't be, grow up under communism. That's, that's, so that's how quickly these things happen. The big concern, of course, is China, because mm-hmm. they do not want an American ally on their border, nor can you blame them. They don't want 20 million people who don't speak Chinese crossing the Tumen River, setting up camp in Manchuria, people who've mm-hmm. never you know, been online and have no real skills to deal with and who are desperately poor. Yeah. So these are two very real concerns about the collapse of the North Korean state and what's keeping it in power. But thankfully, I don't think it's going to last much longer, especially because Kim Jong-un has shown very many signs that he is uh, uh, on some level interested in liberalizing his nation. The problem he has is when these leaders go down, they personally are often and correctly shot. Uh, If you look at Libya, if you look at Iraq, Mm -hmm. if you look at Romania, um, if you look at Iran, the Shah in 79, the Shah had to get out of town very quickly. And there's a lot of people in a leadership position with a country that has 100 to 200,000 people in concentration camps to this day that Mm -hmm. you can see on Google Earth, where it's going to be like, oh, we're not getting you a ticket to Tahiti. Like you're either go- going to get shot or you're going to jail for the rest of your life. Or you're yeah, at, um, yeah. like unconscionable crimes against humanity. The, I mean, the blood of starting children is on your hands and you yeah. did this gleefully and proudly. So that is a real uh, a tricky situation for him personally, even if he wanted to uh, um, liberalize to some extent, even just to get them to the China place of, of like levels of freedom. From a psychological perspective, what do you think is it in I mean, we can see this all throughout history, all over the world, and even in a lot of places now. What is it with certain human beings and the idea of power and control to that sort of extreme level? What, what do you think it is that's sort of innate in human beings that allows those sort of regimes to even be possible, right? It almost sounds like something out of a film or out of a movie or something when you're talking about even just, even just the previous century. Right, a lot of the stories, it sounds just like what? How did? How? How can that happen? And why? Why would that happen? I thought about a lot because I've co-authored books with some celebrities, and when you do that, you have to learn how to see things through other people's eyes. Mm. And I can't even wrap my head around simply being a president and being responsible for war, even if you feel that war is justified, because you know if you're calling for war. That means a lot of moms and dads are going to get that telegram that their son died in the cause of service. Mm. And I don't know how you go to sleep at night uh, knowing, I mean, oh, well, that's the cost you got to pay. That's a yeah. really tough thing that's got to weigh in on you, even under the best, let's suppose, World War II circumstances. Sure. Um, so to get to the point where you are comfortable um, starving uh, hundreds of thousands of your own countrymen to maintain your hold on power when you are not allowing the UN to give them food, when you are concerned that there's a you know, native dog breed that is going extinct. And you know, this concern is because the dogs are being eaten because the people are trying at the point where they're eating bark and dandelion and yeah. saccharin just have something in their stomach. I can't, I can't, there's no bridge from my psychology 
to that point. It, it's totally alien um, to my thinking, and, and yeah. I think suspect to uh, many other people's thinking. Yeah, no, it's just crazy. I mean, because you you see it in much more subtle forms, right? It's very rare for anything to get to that kind of extreme, but it does seem that I mean, there is that well known phrase: "Absolute power corrupts absolutely." But it does seem that even if you're in a Western, liberalized, democratic country, I mean, we, we've been seeing this over the past couple of weeks where you're just getting certain, whether they're mayors or governors or country leaders or whatever, who just like, really, really like that power and control. I mean, I guess to even be in that position, you do have to be someone who is naturally does crave some form of power and control over others. Otherwise, you're not going to run for prime minister. You're not going to run for governor. You're not going to run yeah. for the president. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that I, I'm very interested in the way humans behave and how it sort of repeats and how you see these patterns throughout history. And like like yourself, I can I can get it to some degree, but it's like, okay, there's a level where you're just like, wait, how do you even, how do, you even do that? And then how do people also go along with it? Because Yeah, th there was one big clue, because I've always wondered, okay, do they believe their own crap, right? That's the yeah. big question. At what point do you start believing? And in, in Romania, uh, the Ceausescu's were dictators for that country for a long time. And one of the greatest YouTube videos, you can watch this. I mean, they were like forcing people to breed by law because they wanted the population to increase. And because of this, you had all these orphans. It was just, it's just horrible. Even by communist standards, Romania was a very dark place and Nicolae Ceausescu was inspired by the great leader Kim Il-sung and you know that all the propaganda is a book about he's how he's the genius of the ages and so on and so forth and there's this the moment I'm speaking about is he's giving a speech at some square because there had been like protests and the people booed him mm. like for the first time in decades and you can see the second he looks over and he's like Whoa. Like it doesn't reconcile with his thinking. It's like if you it's like if you open your fridge and it's an aquarium, you're like, what? what I don't understand what this is. And he just looks, yeah. and he would be dead within a week, I think. Wow. And what was amazing is they put him on this fake trial very quickly. He tried to get out of the country. They found him because he obviously his face is everywhere. They know what he looks like. Yeah. And during the trial, where he refused to say anything, and it wasn't really a legal trial. It was a show trial, to be fair, because mm -hmm. the conclusion had been determined. The wife, who was even considered even more evil than him, was berating the people. And she said, how dare you? I raised you like a mother. So, you know, at that level, she really thinks that, <laughs> I, I, that she's the one who's like giving yeah. them food and taking care of them and they're being ungrateful. Yeah. And that's when you're like, wow. I mean, we also forget the capacity of the human mind to tell itself what it needs to believe in order to maintain its uh, uh, fallacies and, and illusions. Mm. So we all have that. Um, and to some extent, uh, even you and I have to have that. Oh, we yeah. have to yeah. be convinced that we're more interesting than we are because you got to go <laughs> in front of a camera, right? And run your mouth for an hour. And a hundred percent, we're going to say something ignorant. hundred percent, we're going to say something that doesn't make sense or contradict something else. It's, it, and we have to be fine with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but we're not responsible for thousands of lives. We're not responsible for uh, killing parents and making kids into orphans or vice versa, or starving children. Yeah. And they are. Yeah. So I don't know uh, what that is like. And frankly, you know, I have met one, uh, um, person who was, I would describe as a sociopath. There's a guy named Michael Alec, who was a head of the club kids, which is a movement in New York in the club scene in the nineties mm -hmm. where they all dressed up in crazy costumes. There was a documentary about him, which was later made into a movie where he was played by Michael Alec. And I was in a, um, 
a store in Chelsea here in, in New, York, New York City. It's not the Chelsea in, in Britain. Yeah. And I saw a painting and I thought the signature said Malice. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. And it was M. Alec. And I'm like, wait, is that Michael Alec? And I bought the painting. My mom got it for my birthday. It's in my living room now. And then he was, he later killed someone. He was known as a club kid killer. And then he went to jail. I think I've and heard I of vis- him. Yeah. 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 I visited him in jail. And I, you know, we all like, all of us, when we hear about like all these disorders, like that sounds like me, it's kind of like the horoscope. And then you meet someone who actually has it. You're like, oh no, 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 no. It is not a thin line between someone who's like annoying and someone who has borderline personality disorder. It is a very, very thick line. It is not the kind of people you just find annoying in your office. Although sometimes it could be that. (laughs) And talking to him, it was like very weird uh, knowing like very quickly, I'm like, this is not someone who's wired like anyone else I've ever met. Mm. So I, I'm curious if these types, uh, if you met them, you're like, I'm looking into the face of uh, the devil. Uh, we saw, I'll give you another example. It happened here in America with Lisa Bloom. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, at the very least, abused his power and treated women horribly, right? At the very least. Let's give him every benefit of the doubt. Yep. Um, Lisa Bloom, uh, who was an attorney, her mom's a powerful feminist lawyer, Gloria Allred, she, in writing, she wrote to Harvey Weinstein when these allegations were coming out. She said, let's launch a campaign. This isn't writing. Okay, this is what's amazing. Against Rose McGowan. First of all, I'm going to try to befriend her. While I'm trying to befriend her, we put a campaign in kind of exploit the Google search results. And we plant stories to point out that she's a pathological liar and crazy. Then we have an interview you do where you talk about mistakes you made in the past. Maybe we have your mom with you and Trump's tape where he talks about grabbing women by the you know what. And you apologize. And then we try to bribe her. What does she want? Does she want to direct? And you're reading this and you're like, you're, you're the devil. Like yeah. you're, you're, you're actually the devil that there's this woman who you don't doubt necessarily has been the victim of, if not sexual assault, certainly horrible treatment. And you are offering for the sake of money to launch a campaign to portray her as crazy and a liar. Uh, I don't know how you can uh, uh, sleep at night doing yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, it would be one thing if you knew Harvey Weinstein was innocent and he's being railroaded. Mm-hmm. And you're like, this is not right. You, you have a family. You have a good reputation. That's not what this was. Yeah. And I, I, again, I don't know. At a certain point, money loses utility. Yeah, yeah. Like the difference between a millionaire and two million, it, it's, your <laughs> life's not going to matter statistically much at all. Maybe at yeah. a billionaire level. So I, I don't know. Um, and maybe people get it. I think there's this perverse sense of pride in getting the system to be manipulated to your will, I guess, mm. in some kind of weird Nietzschean way, but I, I can't relate to it at yeah, all. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's one of those things I, I wonder a lot. I mean, I do believe that, you know, well, firstly, firstly, I believe that the devil is real. Oh, yes. And then, yeah, and I just I just think evil is, evil is real. You know, I think that there there are elements of it in every single human being, and we all know that we have all done and said nasty things at some point in our life, which could be considered evil. But there, there are levels, right? And there are some people, for whatever reason, where that evil is just, you know, evil, evil doesn't need a reason, right? Like the reason for evil is to do evil. So if someone is possessed by that and is driven by that, then at some point, there's not really, there's not really an explanation, right? There's some things you can explain and say, okay, this was the incentive or there was this mental health problem or there was that. But then it's like, at some level, there is just evil where someone does go out and commits a, I don't know, someone goes out and commits a mass shooting and they legitimately just wanted to cause a massive harm. There's yeah, yeah, not, there's yeah. not, there's not a deep down reason that you can 
go and say, oh, it was this, it was that. There wasn't, no, there wasn't a motivation. The motivation was the evil itself. And I think that people don't like to, I don't think people ever like to reach that conclusion. People like to always think, okay, no, like there's something that we could have done earlier, some interventions, you know, that nobody is evil, right? And it's like, I don't, I understand why you'd want to believe that, but I think I kind of know too much and have seen too much and read too much to buy into that because it seems like this has existed for as long as humanity has. Yeah, I read this book once called Cocaine a Biography. It's, it's a history of the drug. And the author is a journalist. He went to South America and he talked to of these the kind of gang lords. And these weren't just people growing cocaine and selling it peacefully. They, I mean, they were responsible for killing many people. Mm. Um, and he's talking to them and he's like, he's like, they're like these two fat Colombian guys. And you know what I mean? It wasn't like, and they go, what'd you expect, horns? Uh, so when people are evil, they're not, they don't have a devil costume on. No, no. They're not glowing and <laughs> levitating. Yeah. Like Lisa Bloom is, looks like everybody else. The Ceausescu's, yeah. you're not going to pick them out of a, a, like a, a, a lineup and be like, oh my God, that's the one. Uh, that, and look at um, uh, the guy, the mass murderer from Florida. I forget his name. They just made a documentary about him. Like he looked, everyone was talking about how handsome he was. Uh, they look just like us is the yeah. thing. And that's what makes it even more uh, sinister because on a fundamental level, they are not human beings in the same way that you and I are. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy, man. So I want to talk a, a little bit. I want I did um I haven't read your North Korea book yet, but I have read your book, The New Right. I read that last year. Oh, okay. I thought it was uh, thought it was very very interesting, and I I love the fact that you really went into all of the dark corners of it, right? Not just the mainstream. I don't know the. Right. I think there are, there are lots of books and people who talk about I don't know the the rise of Trump or whatever. And it's like, okay, that was talked about, but you actually went and spoke to the really unsavory, <laughs> like oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the actual alt-right, right? People throw, people throw around terms like alt-right and white supremacy. They've, beca- they've become very diluted terms now, but you actually went and you spoke to a big range of people from anarchists to actual white nationalists to people who just were on board with non-traditional conservatives or Republicans, et cetera. So firstly, not everyone listening would have read that book. So can you give us a little bit of a breakdown about it and why you wanted to write it? Yeah, I think I'm the only person on earth, I'm, I think I'm certain, who was both at Charlottesville and has been to North Korea. So I, I, I've seen it all, baby. Yeah. Uh, and that's also funny to me when people on Twitter call me a coward, like, you know, because you don't want to argue with them. It's like, I, I've been to some pretty bad places. Sure. I mean, I'm, maybe not the Denang, but it, it certainly wasn't fun getting on that plane to North yeah, Korea. You've just given sure. me an idea for a tweet, by the way. <laughs> with, I, my, I, with my I, blessings. Yeah, which is that, look, if you hide behind a fake name and a fake avatar on social media, you have no right to call anybody a coward. Your entire online identity is rooted in cowardice. Zuby, so, there, there's no possibility of being brave on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're in a free country, you could tweet at the president, you could tweet you at the can. cops, you, you could can. tweet at anybody, say, I hate you, blah, 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 you're garbage. You will have no consequences other than maybe a block. Oh my God, they blocked me. This is, <laughs> this is like a war wound. Shrapnel, ah, I'm going down. So, Perspective. Yeah, the reason I wrote the book, and it's a similar reason to why I wrote the, the um, North Korea book, is I had been swimming in these circles for quite some time. I am an anarchist myself. And then I saw so much of the content being produced about this was completely ill-informed and misinformed, and I think much of that by design. Mm. And I thought, someone is going to write this book 
and take control of this issue and this scene, and it might as well be me. Mm-hmm. And what I enjoyed about writing it, and, and you did, I, I talked to everyone, you know, uh, in there yeah. and with no um, shame in doing so, mm-hmm. is I think it's important for um, if someone has a perspective in a free country that we regard as somehow unsavory, many of those people are not a lost cause. Mm. Uh, many of those people, and I discuss this in the book, are reacting to you know the reigning ideology, which is you know I find you know despicable and reprehensible. Mm-hmm. So they think, okay, I'm going to do the opposite. Well, the opposite is its own often kind of despicable and reprehensible. Yeah. And and uh, you know one of my quotes is, you take one red pill and not the whole bottle. Mm-hmm. If someone doesn't grab some of these people by the collar and be like, no, 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 no. you're you're hating the right people, yeah. but you're also hating the wrong people and going and thinking about this the wrong way. So. I thought it was important to have a book like this also where someone can uh, explain and codify these kind of different ideologies because they disagree about a lot. They mm-hmm. only agree about their opposition to progressivism sure. and have it written not from a mainstream uh, perspective where, oh, these people are all stupid and crazy. Yeah, when you yeah. say someone is crazy, that is you confessing you don't understand their thought process. Mm. And if someone is behaving in predictable, coherent ways, they might be wrong, they might be delusional, but they're not crazy. And, yeah. and that's one of the things I learned with the North Korea stuff. Before I started doing this, I moved the meat a little bit and I'm, I'm proud of myself for it. They were often described as suicidal and crazy. And I said, if they're suicidal, how are they still standing when all these other countries fell apart? Mm. If they're crazy, how is it that they're still empowered? It's being crazy means not being in touch with reality. If you're not in touch with reality, it's really hard to stay on top because you're not getting the data and processing it correctly that you need. So that word is when you hear people say that, that means often that they are having some kind of cognitive dissonance. They're feeling ideas that they can't port well to what they perceive the world to be. So they feel the need to dismiss preemptively. And many of their criticisms, um, if not uh, wrong, or mm-hmm. you can even call them evil, are not incoherent, are not based on just, oh, this is people suck. So, yeah, yeah. and it was, it's also fun, um, you know, being Jewish and being an immigrant, talking to <laughs> some of these types, because when you have any group, you're going to have uh, uh, the whole range of um, mindsets. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have people who will treat you as an individual. Um, I'm sure there's many racists who you've talked to, who, well, this happened to me, because in Russia, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. And my dad would tell me there was a college professor who patted him on the back and said, Ted, you're one of the good ones, you know, about yeah. being Jewish. And, yeah. and the guy thought he was, you know, being normal. And you're like, <laughs> it'll be a lot better if you just hated me than if you were being like, you're good, but like everyone you're related to is garbage. You know yeah, what I mean? Just yeah. because of who they are. Yeah. Um, so it was, a, it was an interesting ride. And, and I cover all the big personalities. And it's kind of structured how as the book goes along, there's this big uh, claim, which I don't think is absurd that this whole scene is like a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. And the book really is the slippery slope because as the book proceeds, the people get more and more kind of uh, um, uh, removed from the mainstream thought. And uh, everyone's going to have to figure out where they draw the line in terms of, okay, I can't go past this. This is where I am not comfortable. And I think this is just really wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at all. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, the thing I think with, with any extreme ideology, again, this is one of those things that is, is true but you're not supposed to say, I think I say a lot of those things, is that most, whether someone goes like super far left or super far right, any direction, they are right about some things. 
Yes, yeah. Right? There there there's a there's a current even if you took the most far left communist like authoritarian communist person, right? There are certain things that they believe which which are actually right. The problem is that they take them to an extreme and they also believe it comes with a whole bunch of baggage of stuff that is very wrong and often very despicable. Same like with the far right. So they may have certain concerns or things that they think are not being addressed or aren't being voiced or whatever, which actually I'm like, yeah, fair enough. I actually agree with that. But then the other stuff, <laughs> then it's like, oh, no, 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 not that part, not that part. And I think a lot of the issue, especially in terms of bringing people back from the fringes and sort of moderating people, is not an unwillingness to kind of give the devil its due at all, right? To yeah. not want to just, just say, look, that person believes, this person has 10 beliefs, and these two are completely insane, so that means the other eight are also wrong and insane. But those other eight could be very astute observations and valid concerns. So you need to address those ones. Otherwise, I think more people can potentially get drawn into those more extreme ideologies or political parties or whatever the case may be, because the people in the middle, right, the sort of normal conservatives or normal liberals or normal libertarians or whatever, are just totally unwilling to even discuss certain things. I think that's one of the big problems that I see with what people call political correctness, right? It's, um, I mean, here, here's a great example. In the UK, you must have heard of this uh, grooming gang situation. Oh my right? gosh, a lot of going, yeah. Going on for a long time, okay? Not wanting to be addressed by the police or the authorities, etc. They were afraid of creating uh, racial tensions. They didn't want to be called racist. They didn't want to be called Islamophobic. So thousands and thousands of girls are, are getting groomed and sexually assaulted and molested and raped because they don't want to address this issue. Who were the people who were banging on about this issue for a long time? It was people who in the UK were considered far right. It was the British National Party. It was guys like Tommy Robinson. If I can say his name, I'll probably, I've probably just been demonetized now. It was, um, you know, people let, who... Let me interrupt you for people who don't realize the BNP aren't like the Republicans. No. They are the people to the right where even Farage is like, I'm not talking to you guys. Yes, so let's yes. be clear. This is, when you say far right, you're not using that term. Yes, no, I use it properly. Yeah, yeah, using the term properly. But they were talking about that, right? They were talking about that, but... Because they were talking about it, no one else for, for a long period of time, it was like, oh, we can't even we can't even touch this issue. And it's like, yeah, well, lots of their other stuff was very unsavory and despicable, but that was a valid that was a valid concern, right? Yeah. There are valid questions and concerns that people may have about immigration that are not rooted in hatred of people from other countries or hatred of people's skin color or whatever. But I think we all on a fundamental level understand that you don't want to just tomorrow say, you know what, anyone from anywhere in the world can come into the UK. As long as you can make it to the shore, you're welcome, right? Some people are super naive and think that's some kind of good idea. But I think most people, right, even, even a progressive, <laughs> even a liberal would be like, no, okay, there's got to be some, there's got to be some limitation. There have to be some rules. You can't just have the population double tomorrow and you know how, how are we going to feed everybody how, where are they going to live what's going to go on uh what about crime we'll figure so, it out we'll yeah figure it. yeah we'll figure it out so we're, yeah we're so <laughs> yeah so coming right? back to what i was saying i mean that's what uh yeah it, it's it's one of those weird ones because it, it's kind of uncomfortable for people because once people go past a certain line you don't want to associate with them most people won't even want to talk to them or even listen at all 
And at least, even if you think they're wrong, even just listen to what they're sort of saying. And so, like I said, what I really liked about your book, The New Right, was that you crossed that boundary and didn't just sort of write people off and keep it perfectly within this uh, safe zone. Yeah. So like the sucker that BNP example used, that's a good one mm. because people will say, and I think truthfully and accurately that their concerns about these girls are for the wrong reasons. Like, it's not that they really care about these girls per se, that they're more concerned about, you know, blah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. keeping Britain white and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. And there's an inverse of that. So if I'm talking about this issue for the wrong reasons, people don't need to address it. I mean, it's, that's a demented mentality. People probably wouldn't express it explicitly, but that is what it looks like happened. But there's the inverse of that, which is if I'm talking about this issue for the right reasons, then I'm not really responsible for the consequences of my policies or my views, because mm-hmm. at least I have the right goal at heart. And I'm like, I don't agree with that at all. Yeah. First of all, I, I don't necessarily know that your vision is good. I don't think good, if it doesn't correlate to reality, is good. Mm-hmm. I think it's just delusion. And you do have to have accountability for what this would look like because history is full. You know, I hate the cliche, the road to hell is full of good intentions. I don't think their intentions are often good. Yeah. I think their intentions are also like you're saying, that's in a democracy, it lets that person feel powerful because now I'm the one helping people. I'm kind of that Messiah figure. Mm. So a lot of that is, uh, has a malevolent subtext as well, of using other people's as a means to your own salvation and not being genuinely concerned with their health or well-being so much as that I got to be one of the good people who helps, not like yeah. those bad people who don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see this a lot with you know, what they call slacktiv- slacktivism on Facebook yeah. and Twitter, <laughs> where if I just change my profile picture yes. uh, to the right thing, all of a sudden I care about the people with France. Mm-hmm. And one of, you know, one of the things I talk about in my work, and I've done a lot of research about the Harlem Renaissance and, and, and you know, fringe figures in the past, it's like, where were you when these figures needed some, where were you for gay rights before Stonewall? Yes. Like now you're for gay rights when Times Square is all rainbows. It's easy and I, now. I, it's easy now. Yeah. Where were you when these people were getting fired and were regarded as basically like sexual predators and complete deviants? Mm-hmm. You, were, you were in your nice little bougie house reading the New York Times, which proudly reported the people who were fired at these raids. Mm-hmm. And it's this, it's all these people on Twitter think that they would have fought for the North during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're saying this in 2020. <laughs> I do not believe you that you would have been signing up in 1861 Mm -hmm. to fight for this when even the northerners didn't think they were fighting for slavery so much Mm -hmm. preserving the union so there's so much um a question about perception how people want to view themselves in in terms of time travel that it's it's uh kind of um uh, ridiculous to observe yeah definitely i always say the the majority of people would have acted as the majority of people right yeah look at germany like do you think uh, like hitler comes he didn't have a magic wand no. Like everyone follows the leader, they follow the country, and then now Germany's normal. I mean, that exactly. They, the majority. That's a great way of putting it, Zubia. That's exactly right. Mm. Yeah. No. It's a. Uh, yeah. No. It's it's really interesting. I think there there are so many things that exist in the world, sort of individually and collectively, which are super interesting, but they're just uncomfortable, and so yeah. people don't want to. People just don't want to go there, don't want to discuss that. And, you know, yeah, sure. Do I think some things should be taboo? Yeah, actually, yeah. And it's certainly a polite conversation. I don't think, I don't sure. think, yeah, I don't think everything should be brought up all the time. But I think that if something is a sort of legitimate concern and something that matters, the fact that it is simply uncomfortable or that we don't like the stats or we don't like the facts or we don't like whatever the case may be, 
that's a really lame and long-term dangerous reason not to address it. And yeah, that yeah I'll give you a, a, good, a good example where that's having specific, concrete, horrific consequences. And this is nothing to do with partisanship or ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, before at Thanksgiving, I talked about this when I was on Rogan. A friend of mine came out to me. He had been the victim of childhood sexual abuse, mm-hmm. and he was scared to tell me. And I realized, wait a minute, this is really, really bad. Because if I told you that my mom was a drunk or my dad was a deadbeat, you'd feel bad for me. You wouldn't think anything. It'd be like, you know, okay, say, conversation would skip a beat. Mm-hmm. When someone, we don't like thinking about children and sexuality with good reason. That's not how any decent person thinks. Their mind just ever, never goes there with good mm-hmm. reason. But that's how these predators get away with it. Because my friend was scared to tell me because he didn't know if I was going to freak out. He didn't know if I was going to treat him like a broken bird. And after I talked about it Rogan, I had three other friends come out to me privately oh, wow. that they had been the victim. So if I know at least four people, that means this happens a lot more. And it can't be the way that if you have a friend who has this, that they should feel uncomfortable telling you and that you're going to bug out because that trauma and that abuse they suffered as children, they grow up and they have to sit there and keep that secret. Mm-hmm. And that person who did this to them, this horrible person is walking around, having gotten away with it. And that's the technique they use. So that is a a very concrete example of where people don't want to talk about something and you can't blame them. Uh, It has severe consequences for children. Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. And I mean, I mean, it's, it's weird. I mean, that's the same way I feel. Of course, we, you mentioned Harvey Weinstein earlier, but there is a lot of, I don't even know how far it all goes. I mean, Right. There is in the world of, especially in the world of entertainment, Hollywood, music industry, et cetera, right? I'm, I'm in the music world and there is a lot of dodgy stuff. There's like, there's just a rabbit hole. I myself don't even know how, how deep it goes, but right. we've seen things, right? We saw Jeffrey Epstein, right? Like what happened there? People have stopped talking about that now, right? The right. dude got, the dude got whacked in public. What right? about, what about Prince Philip <laughs> Prince? Prince Philip or Prince Albert, which one it is, Prince Charles' yeah. brother, I have to get them confused. Like he's walking around. Yeah. It's like you, Prince Andrew, you, Prince Andrew, you yeah. did this. You were known yeah. to have done this. That interview was a train wreck. Yeah. Like you were just lying. And it's like, there's no real consequence with you. The, oh. the, the, if, I, if someone had said that there is a, a, an international uh, a sex trafficking ring and ABC News is going to report on it, and then the, the royal th- palace called them and killed the story, you would have thought, okay, Alex Jones, put your tinfoil hat on. But that's what happened. But this yeah. is the thing is we're trained. Yeah. We're trained since children in school to think that people in leadership positions are there by dint of their virtue. And that even if they maybe sometimes they're corrupt, like, oh, I'm going to get my brother a job and he's going to get a kickback, mm-hmm. that they're not going to engage in like this kind of unimaginable depravity. Yeah. And we're finding out this happens a lot. Yes. And there will be people who tell you tooth and nail, this would have happened, let's say 10 years ago. How could you, Bill Cosby would never do something. How could you say something like that? I watched the Cosby show, Bill Cosby, how you're a monster to Mm -hmm. think he's capable of doing this. And when you have what, 40 women, let's assume half of them are lying. Let's pretend, right? Half of them are consensual, 20 women then. And you're like, oh, this isn't like he got him drunk and fooled around. This is really not a thin line, not a gray area, sustained campaigns, and this happens a lot, and everyone knows about it. Mm. That's the part that is the darkest part, that yes. it's not like it was a, if I knew about Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. before this happened and I knew about it, well, everyone knew. 
And that means that there's systems in place, uh, just like Prince whatever. I, yep. I, I, have a, I can't remember his name. I'm Joe Biden. Andrew. Uh, system, <laughs> Prince Andrew. Yeah. System, when I think of Prince Andrew, I think of a piercing. There are okay. systems in place to make sure these people never not only have consequences, mm. but never even have to be acknowledged of these rumors. And thankfully that is changing very quickly because of social media. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. And then, you know, all these celebrities, I mean, how many celebrities knew about some of this stuff, right? How many, how many people knew about Jeffrey Epstein? How many people knew about Harvey Weinstein? Tons of them. Right. And then these are the people who are there. This is why virtue signaling, especially amongst celebrities jars me so much because so many of them, some of so many of people's idols who they think are these wonderful, lovely people. I'm like, look, some of these people were, they knew some of this stuff, right? They, they, they know this. So I, I don't care how much they hashtag on Twitter or what, the, you know, you know, it's like, there's something really dark there, like really sinister. If you, if you are aware that this thing is going on, but because of your, to protect yourself and your fame and your money, et cetera, even though you've already got enough of it, yeah. you are willing to just let it slide. And then maybe when it comes out there, oh, maybe then you'll sort of say, oh, like, you know, I, I knew, I thought something was going on, but, and I'm just like, man, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of disheartening in a way. People, we just, we, we had a little exchange yesterday on Twitter, right? People who follow our tweets, and that is our thoughts and putting ourselves out there much more than a celebrity who's an actor, because mm. uh, they have, you know, publicists, they have people looking over their stuff, they have a team, feel that they know us. And you and I have both experienced with people. Some people will argue with me that <laughs> I'm not really this way because I'm really like this. And I'm like, you're telling me you know me better than me. We have to connect. But then you have to realize if that happens with us, whose personality dictates our work, mm-hmm. if it's someone who's an actor who you've never met, you do not know that person. No. You do not know them at all. Their job is to proje- project a certain kind of image. They could be in real life really, really cool. They mm-hmm. could be jerks or they could be really, really dark. Yeah. And you would have absolutely no way of knowing it. And the most important thing is when the people are really dark and depraved, those are the ones who are usually the best at passing because mm-hmm. they've had to do that their whole lives. And they're the ones who get off on passing because yes. they, they get a sick kick of having people think that they're just like you and me when mm-hmm. they are on a fundamental level dead inside and they know it. I mean, this is how sociopaths operate. Yeah. So it's very well established. And sociopaths are drawn to power and they're drawn to uh, hurting other people. But yeah. then we're also taught... Oh, that's crazy talk. Not everyone's a sociopath. This doesn't really happen. These are outliers. It's like being the president is an outlier. There's only been 45 of them. So it's not going to be a a statistical sample of the average American or the average person on earth. Yeah, most definitely, man. Michael, what have you got coming up next, man? Uh, I'm currently working on a book about Albert Camus, who is a a philosopher who has profoundly affected my uh, thinking. So I've started uh, writing that and hope to get it out. Uh, as soon as possible. Okay, awesome. And for people listening, where can they follow you online and check out your work? I'm at twitter.com slash Zuby Music. <laughs> in, in blackface. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, like a modern day Trudeau. Hey, hey I, heard, I heard about Joe Biden. I'm not black anymore. That's, you I'm ain't black. Right. No, no, no. No, no, you, you, you ain't black. You can't I, use the correct diction. It's not you aren't, you ain't. Because, you know, I, we can't talk like white people. We have I, to talk, I, you know. I, Black, I ain't black. I, yeah, Uncle Joe has <laughs> Uncle, Joe, <laughs> Uncle Joe's cabin. Uncle Joe's is kind, kindly let me and a billion plus other people. Yeah, <laughs> just okay, man. Black. Yeah, wow, what a what a statement. 
<laughs> awesome, Michael. But uh, Thanks so much, what's, what's your real handle? Michael Malice. <laughs> Michael Malice. Yeah. I, was just, I realized I was like, you still didn't give it. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show, bro. Really good to Always talk to you. Always a pleasure. I am the man, stick with the slang, stick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.